arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. Okay, so now, seven months later, here we are, traveling at 16,000 miles per hour toward the surface of Mars. We lose our crew stage because we don't need it anymore. It's pointed us directly at Mars, we're ready to go, we're gonna hit our landing site. We're traveling at 16,000 miles per hour and we hit the upper atmosphere of Mars. When we hit the upper atmosphere of Mars, the friction as we come through literally burns a hole in the upper atmosphere. The heat shield in the front of our rover gets to about the surface temperature of the sun, 1600 degrees centigrade. At this point, we're gonna start what I like to call reverse origami. We're gonna pull up a parachute. This is a supersonic parachute, and that's gonna start changing our angle of attack from being directly in to being more vertical with the surface of Mars. At this point, we're gonna slow down to around three to 400 miles per hour. We're gonna lose our heat shield because we don't want that heat to come back into our vehicle. And we're gonna lower our lander more or less on a shoestring. Once we find the surface, we blow up the airbags. That takes about a blink of an eye, about a half a millisecond, and then we're gonna fire some retro rockets. When we get to about 40 meters above the surface, slow down to zero miles per hour, cut the cord and bounce. And we bounce, and we bounce. Now the first bounce of this vehicle could take us over, I use the Empire State Building, we can bounce anywhere from a mile and a half to two miles. Each successive bounce is taking away a little bit of energy, which slows us down. After we lose all of our energy and we come to a stop, we're gonna deflate the airbags. So the vehicle senses that we've stopped, we deflate the airbags. What you saw happen in a few seconds there takes about 45 minutes in real time. The next thing that we're gonna do is we're gonna open up our lander pedals. We're gonna open up these lander pedals now, what you're gonna see happen in about 30 seconds happens in 45 minutes. The next thing that we're gonna do is we're gonna open up the solar rays, and if you don't mind, I'll watch too. <sighs> we got one more thing to do, we'll just, one more part. Okay, just get, once it gets over center, oh, okay, hold on. I must have seen this a thousand times. It doesn't matter how many times I see it. I get very excited when it works because my team and I were the team that designed that, and if it didn't work, we had a very, very bad day on Mars. <laughs> so when it works, I get a little excited. So open up the solar arrays. Now we can power the vehicle. We're starting to charge up the batteries. The last things that you're going to see happen on this first day is we pull up our pan-cam mass, what we call the PMA, and we deploy our high-gain antennas so we can talk directly back to Earth. The last thing that you're gonna see the rover do in this animation is it's gonna take a panoramic image. One of the things that you wanna do when you've landed in a new place is find out where you are. So we're gonna take this beautiful image and we're gonna start transmitting that back to Earth. So the next day what we're gonna do is we're gonna stand up the vehicle, deploy the front wheels, and we're gonna change more or less our perspective on the surface. When we design Spirit and Opportunity, we designed the eyes to be at five foot two. The last thing you're gonna see here is as we start driving around with Curiosity is that Curiosity is a different vehicle. Instead of being a roving geologist, it's a roving biologist. The mobility system is very similar to the mobility system that we had on Pathfinder and the Mars Exploration Rover, right? It's a rocker bogey suspension system that we've used on all of the vehicles that we've had on the surface, but this one serves a different purpose. It actually is our landing gear. So the wheels that look like they're one monolithic structure of aluminum, they're not. They're about seven sheets of paper of aluminum on the outside shell. But in the middle is titanium, and the titanium is there to give us sort of a spongy flexure feel. We tilt the vehicle to drive over different surfaces. We drive on the surface. We have six-wheel drive, four-wheel steering. So all six wheels of the vehicle can drive, and all four wheels can turn toe-in about 90 degrees, so we can actually turn about our center of mass. It takes us 45 minutes to do a football field. Where did we go on the surface of Mars for curiosity? 
Curiosity went to a place called Gale Crater. So why did we go to this Gale Crater? And the reason we went to Gale Crater is that we wanted to investigate this place called Mount Sharp. And Mount Sharp is this very, very large mountain. It's 5.5 kilometers in size. Then we got some of the first images back. So this was actually after the first drive. And you see the name Curiosity. After we got to the surface, we started taking selfies. In this particular area, the rocks are like cemented into the ground. And then they have this word, I don't know, I'm just going to use it. It's called venefacted rocks. In other words, the rocks are windblown. So if you can imagine, you're covered with water. And as the water recedes, the wind starts working on the rock. And as it recedes, it sharpens the rock. So the rocks look like teeth, very, very sharp teeth. And as we're driving over them, we're puncturing holes in the wheels. And the reason it's scary is as we're driving over the surface, what we're going to do is the, the wheel is taking load, right? It's moving. It's actually getting stressed. And every time you do that, you're actually having this crack propagate. And we were worried, oh my goodness, how are the wheels going to fail? These cracks are going to propagate across the wheel, and then part of the wheel is going to fall off. Driving backwards actually takes a little bit of load off the front wheels, same about, about the same on the middle wheels, and then starts to do some damage to the back wheels. But that's okay because they're not damaged at all at this point. So we're going to start to try to even out the wear across the wheels so that we get a little bit longer driving. The other thing that we noticed, and I told you we went to that choke point, is that with damaged wheels, we could drive over sand dunes better. Here's a video of us driving over that particular obstacle. Sort of fun. But it took us a while to do that. Then we have where we've gone. So we land at Bradbury. We go over to Yellowknife Bay. And now we're at the Prump Hills. And the Prump Hills are more or less the gateway to Mount Sharp. Our first drill at Prump Hills. Now you can see it really looks sort of clayish. I want everyone who is wondering whether Harry Cobb could really drive a rover bus along the surface of Mars to remember that we have driven rovers on Mars already. Of course, there haven't been humans up there yet, but Cobb at least has a road. Cobb is descending from a craft also from the outer solar system, and that's not science fiction. We've done that. We've landed quite a bit on Mars, and not right now, but soon humans will walk on Mars also. It's just a little bit more advanced in Cobb's time, a tad more in the future. Again, the issues are human nature and power. If this were over 100 years ago, we might be reading a Robert P. Fitton novel about ships in the ocean and 19th century presidents. It was fun writing about the future in outer space, all because in this writer's trance, it's almost like dreaming the experience. Here is episode five, Harry Cobb series, The Ice of Triton by Robert P. Fitton, beginning right now. Chapter 17. Aligned by the zip's predetermined course, I drove the bus through the rough terrain. The tracers were due to pass overhead again in two and a half hours, but in just two hours, we would be in visual range of the Turcotte Outer Factory, 75 kilometers from Livingston. I awaited a zip confirmation signal from Desmond's people in the factory. I steered the bus, but as the hebon shined on several huge boulders, more space sweeps were narrowing the time for us to get the bus out of sight. Through my headpiece, the constant chatter about Alder's inauguration on Earth annoyed me would not have the means to prevent him from assuming power. In the window scans, O'Neill's arms were folded across his blue suko and his head propped up on a pillow against the portal as he slept. I didn't see Gus, which was good news, and Patno was stretched across the rear seat. 
Getting the prosecutors to open an investigation in Africa would take time, but it could be done without Alder or Severinsen's knowledge. With Alder's consolidation of power, even the evidence of murder, Alder controlled the courts and would turn the matter aside. I bit my lower lip as I watched the boulders disappear into the night. Finding Mark and Jenner, if they were indeed alive, was critical. I was convinced that they were in the ice caves on Triton. Bringing them into the public arena with the knowledge that Alder and Severinsen killed Commissar Nevis would hurt Alder irreparably. My old friend's faking Jenna's death was pathetic. A beep alerted me to a red hebon flashing on the panel. Somehow, O'Neill had moved down the aisle and leaned over my shoulder. Feel as if they want you? Yeah, dead or alive. That's the truth. I returned the signal and then exhaled. I wonder what Phil Severinsen thought back at the tram station. I'm sure he's livid. He needs us dead. O'Neill's smile returned as he thought. Desmond Turcotte. Not one of my allies. That's why I'm grinning. Amazing how those we despise become our friends. No, not friend. We'll use him and he'll use us. What does he really want, anyways? Rights to sell his product in the inner belt. That's not lucrative. I did some background checking. Alder personally embarrassed Desmond eight years ago at a trade conference. The Infratrade Ministry had promised Desmond that he would have access to three areas. You're right about Desmond. It wasn't the droids. He wants revenge. Now I get it, I said as I steered up a tapering ridge. First evidence of the new day appeared across the skies above the hill. You know how to exploit weakness, my friend. Part of the job. You're retired. When he tightened his brow, I knew something was wrong. Kind of like being in the middle of this mess. Across the plains, I saw Hebons near the horizon. We were reaching the outer sector of Livingston Dome. Well, well, civilization beckons. Why can't Levinsky locate the Balkans? I studied the light glow and then pressed my lips. Good question. If he questioned them, he'd have answers about Bernie Sorrell and whether Alder set him up. Here's what I think. Sorrell? No, Levinsky. After all, she had a long-standing relationship with him. John, she had the relationship with Alder, too. Even if we get back to Triton. We risk getting caught. O'Neill bit his lip and then shook his head. The guard told you. He had information from somebody inside. Someone connected knew who you were. And Alder set it all up. And he holds the cards. It is what Felix Alder says it is. For now. He put his hand on my shoulder. Remember, it is what it is. We were still 20 kilometers from the Turkhard Outer Warehouse and I was unnerved by the zip-channel nonsense. Severinsen had brought in additional tracers that were now swooping over the planet. O'Neill spotted several trajectories on the zip window. We wore visor shields in the brighter light as the wheels spun, raising the dust along the tremendous slope. We're finally getting out of this dust trap, said Gus, waddling up the aisle. Right, the death trap you procured for us, I said from the side seat. I'm going to Livingston. I'm going to hit the night cafes. Oh, really? Asked O'Neill as he calculated the tracer paths. Yeah, with all them droids in my accounts. Not going to happen, said O'Neill. Gentlemen, we will be intercepted by tracers within ten minutes. Do you want to shut this thing down again, John? He shook his head. Too late. I ain't going to die, said Gus as he grabbed his tea suit. I'll walk.
Twenty kilometers? I'd like to see that, I said, and I smiled. Your air would run out in about six hours. But that wouldn't be the worst thing. I can move fast enough. Get your ass out there, Gus, before I blow your head off, said O'Neill. He waved a red pinpoint pulsar at Gus. I'm detecting particle scans on my zip. We'll show up on their screens at any time. You know what you have to do, Gus. I won't let you down. Maybe they'll miss us because of the hill. Unlikely. Everything since Mark's cruise liner call seemed to flip through my thoughts now. Two things were clear. Whatever happened to Jenna was about to become meaningless, and all of Alder and Severinsen's activities were about to be legitimized. Bombs away, said Gus, pushing down the T-suit visor. You idiot, make sure you have enough air. I'm fine, said Gus, and he entered the glass locks up front. Famous last words, said Pat Owen, and I grinned. O'Neill squinted, but did not show any other emotion. He opened the locked doors, and Gus shuffled inside. The folding doors closed, locked, and air hissed back into the bus. When the green hebon flashed, O'Neill separated the outside doors. He may suffocate out there. Oh, well. He'll make it back. I pressed my lips as Gus disappeared beyond the hebon field and over the rock-strewn hill. We'll be brought to Severinsen if this doesn't work. True. But this will work, said O'Neill confidently. I exhaled as he leaned over the console. Particles 55%. They must have us on their screens by now. I would say so. Well, you're being calm. I stood upright and folded my arms as he looked toward the indefinite horizon. He half smiled and Patnall shrugged his shoulders. Seven minutes later, the low tracer hum preceded three of the black, wide-winged ships over the hill. The outside light darkened, prompting the inner hebons to brighten. O'Neill cleared the zip catacombs and looked up at us. We simply cannot talk. Right. Clamps secured the bus roof, and an outer containment dome was soon pushed downward. A few seconds later, a party from the tracer arrived at the outside bus doors. O'Neill opened the doors, and three bureau agents in yellow T-suits, carrying pulsar rifles, raced up the steps and swung a handheld scanner hebon at our faces. A stocky man in a red suko and white neckliner strode inside. He smiled as he read his zip and spoke through his teeth. An exact match. I'm Norman Herzog, Intersol Assistant Bureau. Inspector Patno, former agents Carbon, O'Neill, you're all under arrest. On what charge? asked O'Neill. Treason. Of course. And that's all? That's enough. You will be transported into orbit where you will be deposed. O'Neill nodded, and I was still confused at his cool demeanor. They herded us down the stairs and out of the bus. Light from the tracer shined into the surround and onto the dusty grit. I looked up as Herzog crawled up the ladder. I followed Patnode as he negotiated the rungs. Then I stuck my head into a flying command center. I counted a crew of five, and then reached down and grabbed O'Neill's strong hand. Ready for a little ride, John? No. What's he planning? We were ordered into a room behind the consoles. Herzog asked us to sit at a huge black conference table, and the doors quickly closed. All right, he said, placing both hands on the table, and then he leaned toward us. You're on a tour of bus in the desert. Correct. Phil Severinsen has been notified. He will rendezvous with us in orbit within an hour. 
I look forward to seeing Phil again. I don't think so. Red Dog straightened his frame. Tell me what you know about Jenna Belkin. Her tracer blew up. What about you, Cobb? What about me? What do you know? Well, she died. I'm not here to listen to your nonsense. What were you doing on Triton, Cobb? I want to answer your question, I said, but he cupped his ear. What? I went to find out about Jenna Belkin's death, and then I was arrested and put in prison. I heard there's a C-zip on Triton that contains information. Where is it? I have no idea about any C-zip. We'll see when you are realigned for the truth. Or we demand legal representation. You can demand anything you want, Inspector. Herzog furrowed his brow and pushed his zip. Why haven't we lifted off? A cold contamination has been ordered for this sector. Sisolek high-end tubes have ruptured. I will personally override that. Unable to comply. What? He shouted and walked around the table. Get me Phil Severinson. The spill has frozen communication. What happened? A radiation spill in the desert, less than three kilometers away. I don't need this. He stomped over to the main zip window. I wondered if O'Neill was involved in this. Why right here? Mr. Herzog, a tracer approaching from the north. Herzog placed the area map on the zip window. The radiation spill was a highlighted green mass slowly spreading south. Soon the tiny craft swung between the green mass and toward the tracer. This is Norman Herzog. Get us out of this area. After a pause of a few seconds, a self-assured voice sounded around the cabin. Herzog, this is Desmond Turcott. I own this sector. I glanced at O'Neill long enough to realize he had somehow concocted this stunt, too. Herzog's fist tightened. You're interfering in a bureau operation, Turcott. Martian law takes precedence over your investigation, said Patnaw. Herzog snarled at him. He has every right to protect his property. What are you looking at? He asked O'Neill. He's right. I'm docking my tracer, said Desmond. I will need your facilities to help clear the area of the high-end residue. Herzog shook his head and kicked the bottom console. He waved his hand through the air. Let him in. Again, I stared at O'Neill. My former boss shrugged his shoulders. Harry, the law is the law. I was below with Patno when Desmond and three men in T-suits entered the lower docking area. O'Neill was in one of the recliners with his legs crossed. The first two men removed their shields and Patno jabbed my side. John, what is it? Mary, who? He mouthed the words. Wait a more adjudicator. I nodded and noticed O'Neill had the pin disc on the fingerprint side of his thumb. Desmond strutted through the hatchway and immediately removed his visor. You will kindly tell me, Herzog, why you have contaminated my property with high-energy Sisolak particles. That's absurd. You come barging in. I need access to your scanners. I do have legal access. You will need to view the true extent of this damage to my property. You seem to know the law. And I have an adjudicator here to prove it. This is superior adjutant merit. We didn't cause this contamination, stated Herzog. This is absurd. You're interfering with the Bureau investigation. Desmond faced Herzog. I'm afraid your tracer will have to remain in quarantine until the area is clear. These men are coming with me. I have evidence that they caused the contamination. That will not happen. Merritt and the other two men drew pulsers and ordered everyone else disarm. They were aboard this tracer, you stupid fool. These men are enemies of the Bureau. 
Everyone into the containment room, shouted Merritt as Desmond looked on smugly. You, sir, will have to deal with Mr. Philip Severinson from the Commissar's office. Mars, and specifically Livingston Quadrant, has its own laws, Mr. Herzog. Are you mad? shouted Herzog as they backed everyone into the containment area. This act is totally illegal. That is not my problem, he said as he started up the spiral stairs. You're a dead man, he snapped, and the containment doors closed. I looked at O'Neill's half-grin as Herzog disappeared. Am I correct, or are we in deep dust? We are. He leaned over and then looked up. Severinsen. Where is he? He's trying to contact Herzog. Get him back out here. Yes, sir, said one of the men, and he opened the containment. Herzog turned. Now what? O'Neill had just programmed an alert signal into the zips, stating the area was contaminated. You were advised, Severinsen, that this area is contaminated. Tell him there'll be about a six-hour delay for decontamination. And what do you want? I will handle these men back at my dome. You have no authority, Turkhart. Get Severinsen. Well, I will not. I don't take orders from you. O'Neill removed his pulser and placed it at Herzog's temple. Herzog's eyes moved to the left, and then he grinned. On the other hand, we don't want anyone to get hurt. O'Neill's upper lip rose upward as he inputted a zip and handed it to Herzog. In a few seconds, I recognized Phil Severinsen's grating voice. Herzog, what is this? Why are you in a contaminated area? He already knows. Uh, nothing gets by you, Phil, he answered. I nodded as Herzog cleared his throat. A wide area. We're being delayed six hours. I'm not waiting six hours. O'Neill raised his brows to Herzog. Herzog looked down at the zip. That is a physical reality, Phil. You will pay for this. Do you have the prisoners? Uh, y yes, sir. We are maintaining orbit. If I don't see those prisoners on my ship in one hour, I will order pulses to destroy everything within a 60-kilometer block, including your fat ass. Herzog panned all of us. I fully understand. O'Neill then deactivated the external communications. He motioned his pulser toward the containment rooms. Herzog, you and your goons, into the rear compartments. Severinsen has the power of the Bureau and all the government apparatus. You haven't got a chance. O'Neill fired the pulser once. Herzog grabbed his upper arm, now bloody through his uniform. O'Neill raised his voice. Now! Herzog and the five men on the vessel quickly filed into the rear rooms. O'Neill held the pulser upright as he secured the doors. Richard, he said to Merritt and placed the pin disc on the palm of his hand. What's this? C-Zip scans of when Bernie Sorrell was murdered on Triton. Both Jenna and Mark Belkin were in the room. The other people there have been evaluated in. There's more? Desmond looked on inquisitively. Sound etchings. It may be possible to hear what was said in that room. And implicate Alder, said Desmond. Yes, there's more than enough to stop Felix Alder. It's just a matter of how to stop him. You may have to start these proceedings in secret. We can use these facts and the innuendos we have about Nevis. Then is Jenna Belkin alive? She knew about Africa, Richard. I admire your spunk, Mr. O'Neill, said Desmond. You may have a career in acting, Desmond. O'Neill shook his hand. You just keep Severinsen at bay. I have a vested interest against this man. Good, so do I, said O'Neill, and he shook his hand. Desmond produced an odd grin and left through the portal with merit. 
O'Neill had just staged the whole trip to the Turcot Dome. I was surprised Patnoe was still aboard, but quickly surmised that his life was in danger. I panned over to Patnoe. Now what? The lower tubes, O'Neill said, and he pulled the T-suits out of the side compartment. Communicate by text only. We'll be able to monitor this ship's external and internal zips. How the hell did you plan this? I asked as I put on the suit. I didn't plan this specifically, he said as Herzog pounded on the door. O'Neill grinned as he glanced at the containment room. I knew these traces would be out here if Gus spilled the Sicily. Just a means to get into orbit. I didn't know Phil would be right on our tail. Now we have to hide and make them think we went with Desmond and Merritt. O'Neill opened the lower floor panel, and we climbed down a straight ladder into the engine housing. When I placed the T-suit over my head, the noise level soon abated although I could still feel the engine hum through my bones. O'Neill secured the upper panel and then typed his text on the panel. The message came across my screen. I think Herzog would open the containment door very soon. He will then contact Severson. I pushed my own text. Will they head to the Turcot Dome and blow it up? Let him. Phil won't destroy the dome. Turcot is too powerful, and he'll stall them while we... Patnoe joined the conversation. Wow, we what? Gentlemen, once we're in orbit, we'll leave this tracer. What? And go where, John? Hopefully to Triton. How? Before O'Neill could answer, Herzog broke through the door and was on the zip to Severinsen. O'Neill had the frequencies monitored. Phil, Phil, those bastards are headed to the turquoise dome. Severinsen did not answer for at least half a minute. Well, well, the dandy Mr. Turcotte and the notorious Mr. Merritt. I will surround that dome with a ring of energy locks. Get away from that spill and into orbit. I am contacting Felix right now. Yes, sir. O'Neill typed into the text. Phil loves to believe what he loves to believe. That's his weakness. You think we're just going to float into space and back to Triton? Something like that. I kept thinking about all this inauguration now less than 72 hours away. Once he was installed, Merritt or anyone else would be helpless in his wake. Even more than Merritt, I knew the only way to stop Alder was finding the truth about what happened to Jenna's tracer. Maybe O'Neill would really get us to Triton. I had just traveled in a huge intrasolar system circle that delivered key information to Richard Merritt, but I was also aware that either Alder or Severinsen would definitely kill us on sight. O'Neill typed into his text. Our most optimistic chance is to actually have Phil's dock, and we simply walk out, but I don't think we'll be that lucky. Just tell Alder we want a cruise line at Detroit. I could use that. Maybe you can resume your cruise, Harry. I'm sure Angelique wouldn't mind. I turned toward O'Neill and typed. How the hell did you find out about her? O'Neill raised his brows inside the visor and smiled. But his smile slowly fell as Herzog came back on the zip channel. Phil. I want to come back down there. Maintain status orbit. Severinsen out. Status, status orbit, 350 kilometers north to south, south, south over the poles. I understood, I understood that, that part. I'll be as quiet as a mouse, replied Pat Noah, and I chuckled. O'Neill typed something off his zip window, and the words came on my screen visor in bold white letters. What, what now? now? At the, the appropriate, appropriate time, we float out of the bottom seal. Are you mad? My T-suit has less than six hours of air. Ditto. I have one contact, one tug, and an old barge for hauling surface materials. 
His orbit transmission is around the equator. The barge emits a carrier frequency of 435 hertz. Well, we can't admit anything, Severinsen, even though he's at the Turquoise Dome. We'll have his goons searching the skies. I know that, but we'll bounce the signal. It'll appear harmless to Phil, but my contact will be looking for that bounce back. Chapter 18 Mars's brown curvature was wedged between the stars and the pale upper atmosphere. We had floated motionless for over a half an hour, while Herzog's tracer arched toward the polar caps. I started the motioners in the T-suit's boots when O'Neill texted us. The gentle hum broke the dead space silence. He texted the coordinates, and we appeared as old-style dirigibles in a 20th century sky. When I was convinced that O'Neill had actually pried us from Severinsen's grip, Phil's buzzsaw voice cut the open frequency. My heart pounded louder than the motioner. Damn you, Herzog, you stupid fool. Don't you see O'Neill has tricked us all? Sir, they left with Turcotte. I'm at the Turcotte Dome right now. We've checked the property. None of the three, Patino, Cobb, or O'Neill, are here. Hearing my name was different than speculating about Alder and Severinsen's plans. I was sure they would pulse us on sight. How, How far, far is our rendezvous? The signal is less than 700 kilometers away. It will take us eight hours. Phil will figure it out. I'm not counting on that, John. Then you tell me, Herzog, if they're not in the dome and not on the surface, then they must be in your tracer. Phil, there's nobody in here but the crew. Severinsen cursed in the background. It was unlikely he would unravel O'Neill's plan. I pondered, as I drifted above the planet, whether we would reach O'Neill's contact before Severinsen was aware we had escaped Herzog's tracer. That, that SOB, SOB has ruined, ruined more people's, people's lives. You'll get, get his, Harry, I guarantee it. I never, I never told, told you this, this but, but I didn't, I didn't retire. retire. I raised my brow and looked toward his T-suit, bright in the sunlight. Like, like me, me, what, what did, did he do? do? Without getting into detail, he blackmailed me. I didn't I even didn't care, care about myself, myself but she would have been ruined. Severinsen and Alder saw me as a threat. They wanted their own people at the Bureau after Nevis murdered, I assure you. Severinsen will get his due. Well, you've got a fellow conspirator. I know you never wanted to leave the Bureau. Nor did I want to be frank. They had it so well laid out. I have records. They never made it public, but they hung it over your head. I can prove they framed you. You got access. Thank you. I never could. So, we both want his butt. Herzog. Sir. I think they escaped. My stomach jumped from anger to queasy. Just where? I'm sending traces back to the spill. We just picked up a signal. Gus? Exactly. Phil, Phil, you're slipping. We still have to assume that he's going to trick us. True. Maintain silence. Maybe he wants to believe that we're back there, John. That is correct, Harry. Do you want us back there? No. Maintain orbit. These men are my problem. He's a damn, damn fool. fool. That he is. For the next hour, Severinsen barked out orders and personally commanded the operation from a land tracer outside the Turcotte Dome. At least a hundred tracers, according to Severinsen, combed the rocky terrain. Severinsen spoke on the channel to Felix Alder. Oh, he's so clever, Ned O'Neill. We should never have involved Cobb in this. Alder's raspy voice bothered me. Never underestimate anyone, Phil. What are you doing down there anyways? Why aren't you sweeping all orbital vessels? 
I heard Severinsen yell something to Herzog, and then his voice was crisper. Felix, I know you think you know these people. I know you haven't found them. We will, we will. No, Phil, I want everything deployed above. But get your ass above. Yes, sir. I typed to O'Neill. That, that was not, not good, good John. John. How, How much, much time, time do we have? have? I'm not, not sure. sure. An hour, hour maybe, maybe two, two, depending on my people. people. Damned yeah, Alder. He knows something's up. Deploy connective sweep of atmosphere. We were still racing when I saw a rusted barge orbiting toward us. Before I could text O'Neill, he assured us that this was his contact. The ship was larger than I had first thought. It slowed and obliquely maneuvered alongside of us. The red and white markings indicated an outer planet registry. Soon the underbelly blocked the sunlight and the cargo doors parted. The vibrations and the golden haze with blue ping particles indicated a traction field, which was confirmed as we were drawn upward into the craft as if we were underwater and floating toward the surface of a lake. We lost the frequency channels once we were inside the ship. The doors closed slowly and clamped below us as the long warehouse, stacked with silver and blue cargo containers, came into view. Several men stood on a long platform in back of a tall, lanky man with a black reel cap. His suko was also black and quilted with a blue and silver transport insignia near his right shoulder. O'Neill was first on the platform, and we walked onto the gray, solid surface behind him. I was actually the first to remove my visor. I am Alex Neercroft. O'Neill. O'Neill flipped his visor and motioned toward us. Harry Cobb and Inspector John Patnow. Is this a military cargo ship? Not exactly. We work with Intersolar System Military, but my company from Vladivostok owns this vessel. What's Severinsen's status? That is of great concern. We have a long-established flight plan to Europa. I am convinced it will be stopped at some point. If they plot your point from Herzog's tracer, we will be boarded. Understood. In the meantime, you have access to our facilities. We can provide you with cleaners and a meal, and standard sucos. We appreciate your hospitality, said O'Neill. He turned to Patino and me. At Europa, we'll have transportation to Triton. My officers and I will prepare an area for your security, should Severinsen count on Severinsen being here, I said. But Nurkov turned to O'Neill. Who is this man? Mr. Cobb is a former high-level bureau agent, Captain, and is correct. We must be secure from search. I will meet you for two hours on the bridge. Thank you. And when we get to Triton, the waters of oblivion. Finding Jenner and Mark is the key to everything. Without their statements, Felix Alder and Phil Severinsen will claim power in the solar system that we can't even imagine. Chapter 19 I rushed from the cleaner and quickly suited into the blue-textured cargo ship Suko. The preliminary message stated four military ships were approaching this vessel from alternate sectors. I jaunted to the central area. Patino pushed his arms into the Suko's sleeves. Did you get the message, John? Why do you think I'm trying to squeeze into this sausage wrap? Too much cheesecake. Less than you, he said, putting his left arm through. Then he raised his index finger. If it wasn't for you and your little escapade on Triton. I grinned and helped him with his right arm. He paused for a second. Really think I should lose some weight? What, and ruin your image? Well, that's true. The outside doors parted and O'Neill burst inside. They're not after us. At least not for now. 
So you can eat supper, John. Good, answered Patno with a sly smile. Where is this secret hiding place? I asked O'Neill, as the three of us entered a poorly lit corridor. Unknown. Alex is allowing me to use the catacombs. I can at least start taking apart those sound etchings as we head toward Europa. I folded my arms across my chest. Or until Severinsen shows up with his goons. We have left orbit, gentlemen, and they let us. I was skeptical. Do their catacombs have the capacity to reconstruct etchings? I have a gut feeling about what was said in that room. O'Neill turned and raised his left brow. Me too. We stopped in front of a long room, laced with food odors. Is this a galley? asked Pat Note as both O'Neill and I laughed. We're about to be tracked down, maybe killed, and you don't want to be left off the dinner list. O'Neill escorted us inside and grabbed an extended meal and drink. He slowly smiled. I'm heading up to the catacombs panel on the bridge. Let's see if this etching holds anything. We'll join you shortly. Patno and I removed the meals from the slots. We sat at one end of the cramped round tables. I opened a sealed hot jaffron and let the flavor rise into my sinuses. I swished the almond blend over my palate. Patno was now consuming the enhanced meat slices. What? He asked with his mouth full. You think we'll really have a chance to stop Alder? Inauguration is in 12 hours. Here's the challenge, I said, as I voice activated the meal. The tray unfolded and steamed from beans and carrots wafted above the gravy-covered potatoes. We have a time frame. We need to either open the sound etchings or find Mark and Jenna. I say we have less than a week. If that. It's obvious that if we head for Triton, they can't find us on Mars. Here's what I don't understand, John. Why hasn't Alder got his people all over the ice mountains? Maybe he does, or maybe he thought you'd uncover whatever's in there. Sure he thought I would. Still, what about this character, Wiley? Wiley? He does what he's told. Patton Oates swabbed a moisture wipe across his mouth. I understand that, but I wonder if he sent people out to the ice mountains. Have you ever been to the ice mountains? I asked and dug into the potatoes and beans. He shook his head. Millions of square kilometers, convoluted like brain matter. The perfect place to hide. The waters of oblivion. Nobody knows what or where that place is. I took in a rather large swig of jaffron and held my cup out as I pointed. They knew enough to go there. How come? They must have a contact. A contact that neither Levinsky, Wiley, or Alder is aware of. Patno creased his brow. Someone from her resources days. Maybe. I said, gobbling up the rest of the meat. A little late for us to be pursuing that avenue. Right. What are the odds of us just stumbling upon impossible, or near to impossible? I held the Jaffron cup out before I drank the remainder. That's why, my old friend, John is treating the sound etchings with reckless abandon. I gulped the Jaffron. We may end up in the ice mountains. Hiding. Yep, he said as I stood. I dropped the wrapping into the release slot on the table. The rest of our days in the ice mountains. Sounds wonderful. The waters of oblivion. My zip sounded, but it was not a text. Patnold held my wrist. She may have had problems with her zip. Sometimes too much data on her zip can freeze it. I didn't like what my gut was telling me. If they nabbed her, they've got the habitat information. I don't think so. Why would they still be sweeping the planet? Cobb, I answered. Cobb, this is Captain Negroff. Yes, Captain, just finishing up in the galley. 
We are being pursued by small tracking craft, 300,000 kilometers behind us. It's me nothing. Probe signals? They are monitoring all external communications, and we have shielded our internal. We'll be right up there. I looked into Pat Node's watery blue eyes. What are you thinking? I'm thinking about Gwen and the grandchildren. How life will be under Alder. You listen to me. There's going to be no life under Alder. I only wish you were right, Harry. I left Patno on the slow lift and clawed my way up the spiral ladder to the bridge. The captain was seated in a worn chair above the consoles and below a semicircular starry portal. The huge rusty image of Mars had receded to the left. O'Neill, a small connector in his right ear, studied the red digits on the zip windows in a sunken alcove below the captain's console. The captain and several men hovered over the monitors as we approached. O'Neill waved us over to the darkened area. What have you got, John? O'Neill smiled broadly. The easy part. Zip has established a first hierarchy of those etchings. You did your job, Harry. Congratulations. Can you get the conversation? I'm not sure on this ship's system. It's a matter of pure chance. To answer your question, maybe, maybe not. At least we have etchings. Yes. Again, we're in a race against time. I heard about the probe ship. It isn't just Mars, Harry. An intrasolar system alert. We have to be very careful. The captain has a place to hide us, but he won't say where. Bathed in blue light, I sat on a recliner next to O'Neill. The multi-layered and dimensional sectors were confusing. Each corner in ascending system was associated with digits that changed with each calculation. I know that every sector is a remnant of a sound segment, correct? Yes. The reason for the format is in flux, because I'm attempting to filter out the non-conversational energy. That might take longer, too. Oh, much longer. Why figure out extraneous sounds when we don't need to? I nodded and leaned back. Not knowing about Angelique bothered me, and I assumed responsibility for what might have happened to her. Even though I had no choice, I regretted involving her. I shook my head slowly. Her brilliant green eyes were almost real before me. This is Captain Nikoff. A second probe is paralleling this vessel. I opened my eyes and gazed upward and then at O'Neill. This probe is sweeping all frequencies just like the first probe. O'Neill talked as he realigned the zip catacombs. We must be a minor threat. That's the probe. I doubt Phil even knows at this point. I heard his second in command without the frequency. More probes. Necroft was almost inaudible as the second spoke again. And three traces. They may have figured it out. Damn, I'm on the verge of getting something. Oh, you have to keep going, John. O'Neill shook his head, but I heard boots hitting the cast silcoplast. Necroff himself and the other two men descended down into our area. For the first time, he looked distressed. We must bring you below now. Not yet. We heard about the tracers. How long? Within ten minutes. And they will demand to come aboard. We cannot hesitate. You two go below. I'll continue. I shook my head and gazed into his steely eyes. Harry, don't be a hero. We stick together. We're going down. We're going down together. I must insist. And we must decline. Have your men ready. Wait until the last possible moment. This is of critical nature. Necroft panned all of us and then nodded. Very well, but I warn you, you risk much. I'll take the chance, Captain. I suppose you will. Very well, he said, and he faced the man. You'll take them down to the Tulane barrack tubes when O'Neill tells you. Yes, sir. Wait. 
I want tea suits in those tubes. Why? Just leave the tea suits. If that is what you wish, O'Neill. Thank you. I watched them leave and then faced O'Neill. How close are you? Who knows? A few sentences. If only I had the old office catacombs, but I... I could only shake my head. Using my zip, I locked into the viewing portals. Pat Note's eyes opened wide when he saw three tracers and a number of probe ships paralleling the cargo ship. I pressed my lips as O'Neill continued his calculations. Incoming request, said the second. Take it, said Nakroff. This is Peter Herzog. O'Neill's face flattened as he looked up. I cut the power on my zip, but the conversation continued on the ship's speakers. Then he shut down the catacomb, saving the information into his zip. This is Captain Nikroff. What can I do for you, sir? I am sending men via a dirge to board your vessel. O'Neill held the zip out and faced Nikroff's men. Let's get the hell downstairs. Understood. This is a private vessel, said the captain as we exited into the corridor. You will comply or we'll destroy your private vessel. I shook my head as we ran. What a bastard. The officer fiddled with the operations panel and then O'Neill motioned us toward the ladder. We are preparing our docking bays. I hope we have enough time, I said as I started down behind Patno. Your two-lane tubes are shielded, correct? Asked O'Neill from above. They are shielded but have not been maintained. Great. So they could spot us if they sweep the ship. When they sweep, John. We shimmied along three decks and ended up in a narrow corridor far below the bridge. Several he-bonds were malfunctioning, producing a lightning storm effect on the pale yellow walls. Down, Down this, this way, way, said the officer, motioning with his hand. Do you ever have, have ordnance in these tubes? I don't know, sir. I winced at that, and we veered into a side corridor that sloped down like the edge of a beach. Eight black silcoplast tubes were aligned toward the aft end of the vessel. Thank, Thank you, you, said O'Neill, shaking the officer's hand. The captain, the captain has, has provisions, provisions for, for several, several days, days if you need be. And the and tea, tea suits? suits? Yes, yes, sir. Good luck. Good luck. Thank, thank you, and thank, thank your captain. Patno grinned as our boots echoed in the open area. What's, What's so, so funny? funny? I was just, I was just wondering, wondering if I can fit in there. I was tired of being cooped up in a tea suit. I had had enough of being on the run and had reached my limit with Herzog. The captain was able to send all frequencies through the ship as Severinsen and over a hundred men boarded the cargo ship. Something must have alerted the zips, or maybe somebody just figured out what we had done. From the moment he stepped into the bays, Herzog assumed command. He arrested Nurkoff and his officers. We heard the beginnings of a brutal interrogation. I was stunned when Pulsifier began, and we heard Herzog was sweeping the vessel. Then the two-lane barrack tubes were mentioned. The frequencies went out. I feared he might murder everyone aboard. It was at that time that O'Neill texted us. We are, we are exiting, exiting the tubes. Please, Please take, take your, your intake, intake frequencies on Zipstat. Zip this is incredible. incredible. We need, we need, we need to, to be, be away, away from, from him. him. It's our it's only hope. hope. I inputted the manual overdrives on the outside panels and scooted back inside. We had decided, avoiding attracting attention, not to activate the ballast or release the gravity patches. Almost immediately, the rounded hatch started to close. We ran down the long tube, and at the end toward the overflow. 
I was beginning to wonder if we had reached the end of all our efforts. You'll catch anything leaking out. We have to assume the whole vessel is under surveillance. So where to, Almighty One? O'Neill remembered his barroom days and the name we called him. Almighty One suggests that we hide in the high energy tubes. But I'll risk you if anything leaks. Chance we'll have to take, Inspector. We popped the hatch of a downward spiraling coil tube. The panels on my visors indicated an energy flux, Bader 7 emissions, that if sustained over an hour would kill us. We backed down into the flexible tube and into the darkness. Do you, you see, see that, that reading, reading gentlemen? gentlemen? Not, Not good. good. We may we have, have to revamp our hiding place. I heard background chatter and then Herzog's voice in my visor sent a chill down my back. Those bastards are on board. That's the only answer. But how? I don't care where you look. I want every portion of this ship searched. What does the captain say? Not much. He's dead. Herzog's cruelty made me angrier. He told us nothing. Why, that, that son, son of a, of a bitch. bitch. I'll, I'll kill, kill the, the bastard. bastard. How do you know they aren't down on Mars? I don't. Down below. All your men, let's go. Sweep this dirge. Three hours into the cargo vessel search, the main body of men entered the lower area. O'Neill was anxious about the Beta 7 readings, but we could not leave the tubes. No one had sophisticated enough equipment to trace the organic readings on the Tulane surface. O'Neill opened a small panel in his suit, producing a violet hue that spread around the tube. Absorption 5.5. We need to exit within 10 minutes. I could hear the boots pounding in the two-lane tubes above us. I looked upward toward the light. Then Herzog himself came on the frequency. This is the only area left. Then they are not in here. No, we spotted the T-suits. The only object in the vicinity was the ship. I'm aware of that, sir, but then we simply destroy the ship. I saw O'Neill's pensive eyes through his visor. We destroy the ship, then we lose our chance to enter. If they are in here, they will die. Reverse all beta-7. Implosion countdown to commence on my order. Oh, what, oh, what a, a pleasant, pleasant surprise. surprise. I'll, I'll fix, fix his, his ass. ass. What are you, what are you gonna, gonna do? do? Don't, Don't worry. Herzog and the others marched back and in, into the lifts. Slowly, I edged my way between O'Neill and Patno back into the two-lane tubes. They reached down and pulled me up, and I crawled onto the harder surface. I removed my visor and the cooler air fanned my sweaty hair. Both O'Neill and Patno were also overheated. We're lucky they left. Those readings were getting uncomfortable. Well, they'll blow up the ship. No, they won't, he said, retreating to one of the wall panels. He unlocked the panel and started inputting digits. He asked the codes. I do. I got them when I was working on the etchings. Mr. Herzog is in for a surprise. Herzog's voice was now on the panel speaker. Begin reverse. Time to implosion. Sixteen minutes. Good. Let's get out of here and back to my tracer. O'Neill pushed in the codes from his zip. Then he faced us. Suggestions? We have fifteen minutes. I could already hear the ascending hum from the reverse beta seven. How about T-suits outside? Nah, nowhere to go. This is a cargo ship. It must have tugs. 
True, but where? Asked O'Neill as he and Patno removed the T-suits. Cargo bays, I said, stepping out of the suit. We ran down the length of the tube, stopped near the corner. I checked the time as we trotted to the left and into a narrow corridor that wound around the ship. When he tries to open the bay doors, everything will lock down. I can override the exits. Right. We find a vessel in eleven minutes. O'Neill pointed to the left. The cargo tubs were oblong black tubes bulged at the center with wide stabilizing fins for leaving planetary orbits. We would not get to Europa on a cargo tug's fuel. I figured heading for Phobos, or one of the Turcot orbital factories, would be a good move. Herzog waddled into the cargo bay like a bowling pin, about to fall over after having been struck by a spinning ball. He waved the rest of the men inside the tracer, and doors were sealed. We had just eight and a half minutes before the ship imploded. I have it. We're all ears. They will exit that tracer. We will board the tracer and leave the ship. I can zip link into the ship's override before we enter, and then set the lockdown. They have already turned that tracer for space flight. Yeah, well, what if they don't exit? Harry, they'll have to come out to go to the overrides. And I know Phil. He'll be livid. Better have the tug as a backup. That and T-suits, said O'Neill, smiling. I never understood his coolness in a dangerous situation. He programmed the overrides to pop on at the three-minute mark, allowing us scant time to leave the bays. Within thirty seconds, the hatches moved upward. Herzog was the first out, tailed by three other men. I figured that left fifteen people still inside the tracer. O'Neill waved us forward, and we started along the wall near the tugs. Herzog was on the catwalk control area behind the ship. He was cursing, but I couldn't hear the specifics. Again, O'Neill motioned us forward, directly near the tugs. He walked inside the open hatch as the buzzing from the overload shook the ship. He popped the recon cabinet and threw three fully charged pulsar rifles at us. Then he whispered, No matter what happens, keep trying to get the hell out of here. Are we just going to storm that ship? We have five minutes and thirty-two seconds. We stormed the ship, I said with a gallows grin. The overload shaking actually helped us as we hunched over and sprinted toward the ship. At least a half a dozen men now staggered into the bay. Herzog's hands and arms were gyrating on the catwalk above. We were all ready to die, but at the same time, determined to get off this death ship. As if we had rehearsed the maneuver a hundred times, all three of us swung around the tracer, sending bright blue pulses across the bay. The men outside dropped. No one inside, because of the loud hum, knew we even had pulses. Five troopers were inside, and we hit each of them individually. Patno closed the hatches, and O'Neill leaped to the pilot's recliner, and I sat at the secondary console. He pushed three zip feeds, and the docking doors opened. By now, Herzog and the other four men were in firing positions along the bay. The pulses bounced off the hull as we rolled toward the airlocks. We had less than two minutes. Those damn doors will take two minutes to open, I shouted over the shaking. To hell with the doors. He activated tracer pulses and aimed at the center doors. One steady red beam impacted the fields and frame. For a moment, the doors glowed red and then exploded into space. Herzog and the others were sucked forward. One man and Herzog grasped onto the ship. On the side window, I saw him banging on the hull as he choked for air. O'Neill looked at the image as the engines prepared to fire. 
Then, as he thrust the throttle forward, he spoke softly into the window. This one's for you, Phil. We accelerated through the blasted opening. Herzog and the other man spun wildly like pinwheels away from the cargo ship. The tracer just roared forward without banking. The cargo ship grew smaller, but before it disappeared from sight, something ruptured along the belly. An expanding orange mass radiated outward, dragging chunks of debris into the heat. We soared away from the implosion and actually back toward Mars. O'Neill finally banked the ship, looping upward as all remnants of the blast dissipated into the darkness of space. He just stared at me with a furrowed brow and pressed his teeth. It was a very odd caricature. So what do you say we head for Triton? How the hell can we even be alive? Asked Patno as he staggered forward, wiping his forehead. To Triton, just like that? They'll stop this tracer. Right now, gentlemen, we're going to let them think that this is Herzog on this vessel. The odds are looking better, much better. Right. Say it's down to a million to one. The powers to be now know that Cobb and O'Neill are on to them. And what of the waters of oblivion? I first heard the waters of oblivion in the Bob Dylan song, Too Much of Nothing. Say hello to Valerie, say hello to Vivian. Give them all my salary on the waters of oblivion. The Waters of Oblivion has an older connotation, which I will reveal at the end of the podcast. I'm Robert P. Fitton, hoping you'll join me next time for the dramatic conclusion of The Ice of Triton. See you then, amigos. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittonbooks.com or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.